0: At the school that I attended, there was one professor who was the professor, like he was the guy that people came to this school to learn from. And he had made a reputation for himself in the academic world with his publications and with his writings. He had made a name for himself on the speaking circuit as just a really great communicator. And so naturally, if you were a student at this school, you wanted to be in his class, His classroom was the largest hall on campus. It was always packed, no matter what the class was. There was always a waiting list to get in. Everybody wanted to be, with like he was the guy, you following me? And I, myself, I wanted to learn from him too. And so I was in his class on several occasions and I was just listening and learning. And, And through that time in that classroom, I got to know a lot about this guy. I got to know about him, like his family, you know, some of his past, some of his past endeavors, his current workings and so on. Like you just get to know about somebody in a situation like that. But I wanted to know more. Like I wanted to know him and I wanted to sit under him and learn from him in like a more intense way. And I actually got my opportunity at this school. They had this initiative. It was a small group initiative where students would be partnered together in cohorts to learn from professors and kind of non-traditional classrooms and settings, things like that. It was a great idea. And I was placed in his group and I was pumped because I knew this was gonna be like the life-changing experience I'd been waiting for. Like the Bible was gonna open. I was gonna learn all the secrets of the universe and stuff. I may have built this up a little too high in my head. But I was going to get to know him. And so the first day came and I met with my other, my cohort and we met in the cafeteria and we were going to be with this guy for 16 weeks. And I remember the first time he walked in the room, everybody else may have seen it a little differently, but I recall it being like that scene from the movies where the cool kid walks in the cafeteria and like slow motion and he's wearing a leather jacket and there's like mist and back in blacks playing in the background. That's how I remember it. I could be off. But something happened. I I got in this group and we got to know each other. And over the next 16 weeks, we learned and we studied. And I did get to know this guy. And something unexpected happened. I didn't really like him. There was a lot of buildup. And don't get me wrong. He's a guy who loves the Lord. He loves his family. He's a good man. But just personality wise, we just didn't gel. And I had some personality quirks and he had some personality quirks where we just, you know, we weren't on the same page all the time. But that story always serves as a reminder to me that there is a world of difference between knowing about somebody and actually knowing somebody, knowing how they work, knowing how their mind operates, knowing them in a relationship. And that distinction is what we're gonna be talking about this morning in our time together as we continue this series called God With Us. This season is where we celebrate the incarnation. It's a a term that talks about God putting on flesh in the man Jesus Christ and dwelling among us. Hence the name of the series, God with us. And one of the, the things that's remarkable about the incarnation is that through that act, through God with us, we actually get to know God, not just about him, but we can actually know him. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. And to guide us in that conversation, we're gonna be looking at a passage from the book of John. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in chapter one. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open those up? I encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat it. We have the passages on the screens to the side, providing our computers hold up. We're having a little technical difficulty this morning. So just to play it safe, you might wanna consider downloading the FCC Monmouth app on your mobile device. You'll find the Sunday button on the navigation bar. If you just click that, you'll find sermon notes with all the passages that we're gonna read already pulled up for you, ready to take notes on and mark up and learn to your heart's content. So that's a great tool to have. So with that said, let's just dive right in. This is a statement that I've said many times if you've been tracking with me in the series at all. So it may seem redundant, but it's actually the perfect place to start. In the person Jesus Christ, we find fully God made flesh. Not just like part of God or half of God, we find all of God made flesh. And that's an important thing to remember. If you have been with us in this series, you caught the podcast last week, you may remember I said last week's message and this week's message is kind of a part one, part two situation. Last week, we talked about how in the incarnation, in Jesus, we find God made flesh, like in a real human experience, fully human. So like he knows us and knows where we're coming from and where we've been. This week, we're looking at the other side of the coin. God was, or Jesus was fully God made flesh. And we're reminded of his full divinity as we look at this passage in John chapter one. We're gonna start in verse one, the very top. So let's just read those first three verses. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. There's a lot to unpack in just these three short verses, and we're not gonna hit all of it. But for our purposes this morning, we're just gonna start at the top and hit some key phrases as we move through. And we'll just start at the beginning, those first three words, in the beginning. Those are some pretty immediately recognizable words. Those are big introductory words that if you were even remotely Jewish in the first century when this was written, you had heard thousands and thousands of times As as Christians and believers today, we have heard those words countless times in the beginning. They're the opening words of the book of Genesis and as such, the opening words of the entire Bible. In the beginning. Those are recognizable, iconic words. And when it comes to words like that, a lot of times we can find ourselves finishing the sentence. If you were in American history class in junior high, you may remember these opening words. Four score and seven years ago, Forefathers, yeah. Some of us remember that a little more clearly than others. So here's maybe a better example. Here's some iconic opening words from the world of cinema. Some of the most iconic opening words. Let's take a look at them. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And we all know what comes next, right? And some of you are saying, wait a second, that's not how that goes. That's supposed to be like one of the most iconic themes in all of cinema, just trumpets and fanfare. and, And that's how that's supposed to go. And here's my point. When you start to mess with iconic opening words, when they don't go the way you expect them to go, it really jumps out and grabs your attention. And that's exactly what John has done here at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning... And everybody in the first century would have known, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how it goes. That's how Genesis starts. But that's not what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everybody who heard that would have gone, wait a minute, that's that's not how that goes. And by subverting expectations, John draws us in and he he just invites us to ask the question, "What, what is this word thing? Because he's already started to make this connection that there's something divine about the word. And as we've read this, maybe just now, maybe as you've read it in the past, you've asked that question, what is the word? Why did he choose that term? And to be honest with you, there are a lot of different ideas out there. Some people think it has something to do with the philosophical backgrounds of the first century world. Some people believe it has to do with a a theologian named Philo that was read very heavily in this region of the ancient world. Some people believe that just simply because the law of Moses in the Old Testament was sometimes called the word of God, it's a reference to that. And I'll level with you, it could be any of those things and it would still work. It would still be right and accurate of what John's trying to do. But instead of explaining what that term means and where it came from, John does something maybe a little surprising, but definitely more important. He tells us who the word is. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The word is not an it. It's a he, it's a person. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus, just so y'all know. And this actually gets clarified a little more clearly for us in the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The apostle Paul, he writes about it like this. He says, the son is the image of the invisible God, meaning he is the visible representation of the God we can't see. He's the firstborn over all creation. And that doesn't mean that, that Christ was created. That's just a term of honor in Jewish culture. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This, this word person, the second person of the Trinity, this concept we're getting introduced to here in John, the son of God, God the son, we might say, incarnate as the, the man Jesus of Nazareth, is fully divine. He was with God in the beginning. He was active and participatory in the creation event. This is not somebody who just sat behind the scenes and twiddled his thumbs. In fact, if you wanted to get technical, that iconic phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's really kind of a summary statement when you think about it. Because what we've just read is that in the beginning, God the Father in partnership and union with God the Son co-created the universe and everything else. But that doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? And that's kind of a lot to, to think through and unpack as opening words. And here's my point, here's why I'm emphasizing this, why I'm drawing attention to this, why we spent so much time talking about this. I want us to understand that Jesus of Nazareth, that the Son of God, was not somebody who just showed up halfway through the story. Again, he's not somebody who just twiddled his thumbs for the first 10,000 years of human civilization. He was fully God. He was co creator. He is equal. He is powerful. He is authoritative. He is fully divine. He is God, capital G O D, with us. God made flesh. And when we realize that, we can start to explore the implications that has for our lives and for our faith, because there's some really, really important ones. Namely, God is represented to us in the man Jesus Christ. Or you might want to put it a different way, because of the incarnation, we can know what God is truly like. I said earlier, there's this a distinction between knowing about somebody and really knowing somebody. You know, and up to this point in human civilization, like we had all the opportunities in the world to know about God. We could know about him through the scriptures and we could know about him through prophets, but we had never had the opportunity to actually know him, like to speak with him and to hear from him personally and to watch him and interact with him and and have lunch with him and just like have this communion, this relationship with him, but in the man Jesus of Nazareth, God made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, we have the opportunity to really know God and what he's like. Now, it's been said by some that Jesus never claimed to be God, all right? And I will admit, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever say, hey, y'all, I'm God. Those words don't come out of his mouth. But it doesn't take a lot to look at what he does say to see that every instance and every opportunity given to him, he is alluding to the fact, he's insinuating, he is asserting that he is actually God in the flesh. There's a great little short story out of the book of John in chapter 10. I'm sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter 10. I got confused, my apologies. John chapter 10, three verses. It goes like this. As Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Oh, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, in that story, Jesus doesn't come out and say, hey, I am God, okay? And yet everybody in that room understood what he was implying, when he says, I and the father are one, he's not saying like, we're just really close. He's saying, no, we, we are one. We are distinct, all right? But in divine mystery, we are also a unity. We are one. And the religious leaders understood that. That's why they picked up rocks to kill him for blasphemy because that's what you did when somebody claimed to be God. In this instance, he just happened to be telling the truth. So Jesus oftentimes alluded to the fact that he is God. And it's so important to pick up on that because when we look at Jesus, that means we can actually get to know what God is like. He clears up the misconceptions of what God is like and who he is and his heart and his mind and his will and his desires and so on. For instance, in our culture today, we oftentimes have this misconception about who God is. And sometimes it's the philosophical misconception. Like we think of God sometimes as like this this impersonal power or force, or maybe we think of him just like as the essence of love. And some of that is because of Eastern influence, some of that is new ageism, but it's just this idea that that God is like this thing that moves through the universe or whatever. And, And to be fair, God is the animating force that gives all of us breath. He is the power that holds us together. The apostle Paul says as much in the book of Acts chapter 17, he says, in him, we live and move and have our being. And First John does assure us also that God is love. He is the perfect representation of love, but God is not just an impersonal force or an impersonal thing in the universe. He is a person, a personal God. We see that in the incarnation of Jesus. Because Jesus of Nazareth was not just this impersonal force or energy. He was a man. He was a person. He had personality and mind and will and emotion and desires. And he is God made flesh, God with us. That means God is a person too. Now, when I say that he's a personal God, I don't mean that it's like, oh, my personal individual God. What I mean is he has all the attributes of a person. We can have relationship with him and actually know him. And that's an important thing to know because, because we oftentimes, you know, if we think of God as this impersonal force, we can't really know an impersonal force. We can't connect with him. We can't have a relationship with him. People have tried to have relationships with impersonal things. Sometimes they marry inanimate objects to try to have a relationship with impersonal things. You may have heard of this before. People marry like pillows or shrubs or something. You've probably heard something like this. It's ridiculous. But there's a, a one man, his name was Aaron Shervenak. He actually married his phone. He went to a chapel, legally married his smartphone, and when he was asked about it, listen to how he explained it. He said, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we connect with our phones on so many emotional levels. We look to it for solace, to calm us down, to put us to sleep, to ease our minds, and to me, that's also what a relationship is about. In a sense, my smartphone has been my longest relationship." Now what Aaron describes there, that interaction, that's what we call servitude. His phone is meeting his needs. It is satisfying his desires. That's not a relationship. And if that's how he views it, it may explain why his phone has been his longest relationship. No, relationship is not just something in where your needs are met and served. It's where you know somebody and are known by somebody. There's connection there between two persons, between two people. And when we look at the person of Jesus, that's the kind of God we find. Not somebody who just meets our needs or serves us as we desire, but somebody who can be known and somebody who knows us. Somebody we can connect with. God is a personal God. Sometimes the misconceptions in our culture that we have, though, it's not about the essence of God so much as what kind of a person he is. You know, we accept that God is a person, but sometimes there's this idea that God might just be this really angry or vindictive, or punishing, or really grumpy God that just is waiting for us to screw up. And maybe you've heard this expressed before, and people say, well, God's punishing me for this, or God is against me because of that." that. Is that really the kind of God that he is? That's not really who we see and who we get to know when we look at the life of Jesus. In fact, we see a very different kind of God. We see a God that doesn't just chuck lemons into our life. We see God that kind of takes those lemons and, and makes lemonade. Somebody who doesn't afflict us and, and punish us so much as somebody who reaches into our afflictions and does something in us that we are incapable of doing ourselves. Great example of this. It comes from the book of John, once again. It's in chapter nine. And Jesus is, is in town. He's approached by some religious leaders. And they ask him the question. They find a man who is born blind. He's never been able to see. And they say, Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because in their mind, if you'd been born blind, somebody messed up somewhere. And God is punishing this man for some sort of wrongdoing. Is is that really what God is like? Here's what Jesus says. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus heals this man his eyes are opened. He sees, and he goes off glorifying God, and all that he says and does. That's the kind of God that we see in the life of Jesus—one who reaches into affliction and pulls out of it something glorious. There's an experience that a young man named Nick Vegesic. He had a very similar experience. He was a young man. He's born without any limbs. He's born a torso and a head, no arms, no legs. And his parents, they were pastors in Australia. When their son was born, they were heartbroken, they wrestled with this question, if God is good, why would he let our little boy be born like this? Nick wrestled with that question as he just was teased and bullied and belittled all throughout middle school and junior high. When he got into high school, he wrestled with the question, if God really loved me, why did he make me like this? He battled depression, he battled suicidal thoughts. And then one day, Nick was reading the Bible and he came across this story that we just read and those words that he had maybe heard a 100 times before for whatever reason clicked in his mind that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Nick considered his life and he thought, wait a minute, what if the works of God could be displayed in my life too? And that was a turning point for Nick. Now he had a different vision for his life, a different motivation. He went on, he got his bachelor's degree today. Nick is a motivational speaker. He speaks to thousands and thousands of people. He tells his story and he encourages them to push, to excel in life, to thrive, to find joy. Because if a man with no arms and no legs can find joy and contentment in this life, what's your excuse, right? What are you gonna say to that? But here's what Nick says as he reflects on, on his experience and on that moment. He says, God's purpose became clearer to me and now I'm fully convinced and understand that his glory is revealed as he uses me just the way I am. And even more wonderful, he can use me in ways others can't be used. From a man who is born blind, God reaches into life, into hardship, and he pulls out glory. From the life of a young man who's born with no arms, no legs, God reaches into hardship and he pulls out glory. This doesn't seem to be a God. Who's just chucking lemons into our life, who is waiting for us to screw up so he can punish us, this seems to be a God who is overwhelmingly in our corner. And that's not to say that he doesn't distinguish between right and wrong, but it is to say, if I could just borrow the words of a Christmas angel, that God's favor rests upon mankind. He is for us, not against us. That's what we see in the message of Jesus and in his life. So because of the incarnation, we can know what God is. He's a person, not a power. We can know what he's like. He's for us, not against us. And there are a lot of other attributes and characteristics of God that we can get to know through Jesus. But there's one last one that I really wanna emphasize because I think it's particularly appropriate given the season. We can actually know what God wants. I said earlier, like if God is a person, he has desires, he has aspirations. God wants something from us, for us. He wants something in this world. And our culture oftentimes has misconceptions or confusions about what that might be. Sometimes we we imagine that God's number one priority, what he really wants is for us to be happy. And I can promise you, God doesn't take pleasure in our unhappiness, but neither is that his number one priority. Sometimes we have this misconception that that what God really, really wants more than anything else is our obedience. And again, I'll promise you that his heart leaps for joy when we choose to be obedient to him. But that's not the motivating factor in this story we call the Bible. Again and again and again, what we see is that what God really seems to want is to be with us. Oftentimes you can see somebody's true desires by the consistency with which they show up. Example of this is, is my three-year-old son. He oftentimes, he wants other people's food. If you have chips, he'll say, I want chips. If you have a cheese stick, he says, I want a cheese stick. Sandwich, I want a sandwich. In fact, this, just this Friday, this was kind of funny because I'd already written this and, and so this happened Friday. We were having breakfast. It was a fun breakfast. We were watching ducktails. We were eating tater tots and blueberry muffins. And I, you know how sometimes you wanna leave that meal with a certain flavor in your mouth, and so you like wait till the end to eat that last thing? Am I the only one that does that? No, okay, thank you, we're on the same page. So I really, these tater tots, for whatever reason, were hitting the spot. So I was saving one. This was gonna be my, my finishing tot, okay? And my son comes up, he says, here's your muffin, daddy. But he takes his muffin, gives it to me, takes my tot and shoves it in his mouth as fast as he can. No negotiation, no warning, like he just wanted my food. He does this all the time. And when he comes and he says, I want this, I've learned how to distinguish whether he really wants this or if he's just three and he's saying stuff because that happens a lot too. I tell, I tell him no. And if he leaves and he doesn't ask for dad's Cheez-Its again, which is my favorite response because I'm a little selfish. If he doesn't ask again, I know he doesn't really want it. But if he comes back to me a second time and says, I'm hungry, I want Cheez-Its or I want your food or whatever, That's how I know he is actually hungry and wants this. It's the consistency with which it shows up. Oftentimes, somebody's real desires are displayed in the consistency with which they display them. And if that's the case, then God must really, really want to be with us. Because that desire shows up again and again and again in the scriptural narrative. If I could go back to those iconic opening words in the beginning that's why we were created. God walked with mankind in the cool of the afternoon in the garden we read. He wanted to be with us. At the incarnation, God put on flesh. He came to this world to be with us. In fact, the angel even says to Joseph, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. In the cross, God bears our sins in his flesh he pays our price and dies our death so that we could have his life and his mercy, also that we might live forever, not off in some la la land of our own making, but live forever with him. And in fact, that's how the Bible ends this picture in Revelation chapter 21 I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will be with them. Again and again and again. God's desire is displayed through Jesus. He just wants to be with his people. And that's where I would encourage us to to let our minds wander and close this morning as we move on to other parts of our worship service is to think about Jesus, God with us. It really is all about him. He is the place where all of this comes together. He's the place where God experiences us. He's the place where we get to know God. He is the place where heaven meets earth. In fact, in, in theological German, they were trying to find this, this word that would describe the incarnation and what they came up with. They just took a bunch of words and shoved them together because that's what they do. It's as punkt. And I, I butchered that. But literally it means the place where a button and a buttonhole fastened together. And that's Jesus. The place where God and humanity, the place where heaven and earth fastened together. They're all found in him. So if you want to get to know this God who is desperate to be with you, get to know Jesus. And not just about him, but actually know him. And in so doing, you're going to get to know the God who came to be with us. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you for the stories that are in this room. I thank you for the highs and the lows and everything in between because it's in those moments where you, you entered into this world and you experienced them alongside us. You know our story. You've walked our story. And because of that, we know that we can trust you. We know that you have our best interests at heart. And the fact that you yourself would come into this world in flesh, and that you would experience all of the joys and all the hardships of the human experience. Also, that you could just lay down your life to save us and be with us is an overwhelming gift, and we just praise you. For those, Father, who wanna know you more, who are curious about you, who wanna experience that life and be with you, I pray that you would introduce them to Jesus in a powerful way, that he would become real in their lives, and that as we all get to know him, we would draw closer to you, much to your joy and pleasure. It's in the name of Christ we pray these things. Amen.